Hello and welcome to the Granter Podcast. I'm Ted Hodgkinson, the online editor, and I'm delighted to be joined today by John McGregor. John's work first appeared in Granter's Bad Company issue back in 2002. The story, What the Sky Sees, follows a young agriculture student from Lincolnshire who is driving home after visiting his new lover when he accidentally runs someone over. Ten years, two novels, and many short stories later, McGregor returned to this first published work in order to rewrite it from the female perspective. The result is in Winter the Sky, which we have published on our website alongside the original story so that readers can compare the two versions. We'll begin with a reading from What the Sky Sees, and then we'll discuss what drew John back to this story. We'll also discuss the collection of which the reworked version is a part. This isn't the sort of thing that happens to someone like you. And we'll then close with a reading from In Winter the Sky. Thank you for joining me, John. This place that I've grown up in is a landscape of straight lines, a field of vision dominated by the parallel and the perpendicular. The straightest line of all is the hard blur of the horizon, a single unbending line which encircles the day. When I was a child, I used to spin round with my eyes on the horizon, trying to spot the places where the line curved or turned or bent, but I never could, and the mystery of the encircling straight line stayed with me, troubled me, comforted me. All other lines find their way to the horizon line, sooner or later. The high lines, the connecting lines, the railway tracks, telegraph wires, canals and drains and rivers, all banked and lifted up above the level of the fields and houses. Years ago, playing in the field while my father worked, I looked up to see a line of boats processing grandly through the sky. I think they must have been barges navigating the 16-foot to Lynn, but at the time all I knew was these boats way above my head. The other lines are the boundary lines, the low lines. There are no hedges between fields here, only ditches. Ditches mark boundaries and suck the water off the fields, serve as the barriers which stop the sea coming back to reclaim what it rightfully owns. And you can never go far before you find somebody recutting the ditches of their land, making them a little deeper, a little wider, one eye on the sky, always wondering when the rains will come and swell the rivers by those few inches too far. Floods. Sometimes the lines of this place are obliterated, and all that is left is flatness from horizon to horizon. This obliteration is always an act of nature, whether come from the sky to erase the man-made geometry and restore a resemblance to the sunken sea this place once was. Sometimes it will be rain, swelling the rivers until they break out of the embankments and sandbags and rush over the fields, ignoring the prayers of the farmers and settling across hundreds of acres for weeks at a time, so that the sky can be seen from below as well as above, clouds and seabirds gliding across the land. Sometimes it will be snow, covering everything, blocking drains and roads, muffling sound as well as vision, until mothers forbid children to leave their houses for fear of them losing their way. I don't remember my mother telling me not to go out, but I suppose I would have been too young. Sometimes it will be fog which obliterates our geometry, hiding even the horizon, veiling the sky. Sometimes the fog will come in with the floods and our world will be utterly alien, unmappable, precarious. The same floods that obliterate also bring life to the land, make our soil the richest in the country. 
At ploughing time, the smell of the earth's nutrients seems to hang in the air, a smell like apple bruises and horse chestnut shells, a smell of pure energy. Sometimes, as a child, I would put my ear to the clodded ground and believe I could hear the richness of the soil, a richness my father claimed would grow five pound notes if he planted a shilling. I suppose it must have been a similar sound to that which children hear when they listen to shells and hear the sea. But I didn't know that at the time. I'd never been to the ocean. The sea regularly came to us, after all, since we lived on land which belonged to the sea. Flatness, straight lines, a man-made geometry. This is the landscape I grew up in. A landscape encircled by the unbroken straight line of the horizon. And this is the journey I never forget. It's a journey I'll make often, driving into town, but it's this journey I never forget. The night I returned to my father's house from hers, the night when I knew that things were going to be different. I drove with my hand on my chest, feeling the burn of her finger there still, and I drove along the straight road with the moonlight shining off the sixteen foot. She had told me many things I thought I'd never hear, talking about us and we and our, as if something had already been decided. Driving along that road, I realised that something already had. I would not, after all, be able to endure a life of solitude as my father had learned to do. I considered it to be an awakening, a welcoming to adulthood, and it felt right that it should take place out on the road, with the sky taking up most of my field of vision and the land flat and dark on all sides. It was sudden. It was so sudden. First, I was driving along the empty road thinking about her, and then there was a man in the road looking over his shoulder at me, and I was driving into him. I don't know where he came from. I don't know why I didn't see him sooner. He was not there, and then he was there, and I didn't have time to do anything. I didn't have time to flinch, or to throw my hands up to my face, or to shout. I didn't even have time to take my fingers from inside my jumper, and as the car hit him I was flung forwards, and I crushed my hand against the steering wheel. As the car hit him, his arms lifted up to the sky, and his back arched over the bonnet, and his legs slid under one of the wheels, and his whole body was dragged down to the road and out of sight. Thank you for reading that, John. In both versions of the story, George runs someone over because he is distracted by thoughts of his new girlfriend, Johanna. His sense of the gravity of this act is outweighed, at least for a while, by the skyrocketing love that he is experiencing and the terror he has over losing her. Is this a story about the burden of falling in love, and how it can eclipse even the most virulent forms of grief? Um, that would be one reading of it. Yeah, I think... Um, I think for me the story has always been about not properly, not properly dealing with something um, that needs to be properly dealt with. And... and so in this case it's you know it's it's driving into that man and and killing him and 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 burying the body and never telling anybody um which is a fairly kind of garish example of of not dealing with something that needs to be dealt with but it i guess it kind of operates on a symbolic level as well and and it's it's a portrait of a relationship in which despite there being in love and despite there being a kind of a, a, a loving couple and, and, and you know the, the two people who make a life together this 
thing that was never dealt with kind of stays as a, as a kind of blockage be between them um, so I guess it's it's about the disappointment of that in a way <laughs> it's really curious that you've revised this story and gone back to it because to me it's also about revision as you're saying trying to do some undo some things that needs to be undone um, I wonder if that's what led you back to revising this story in particular and whether or not that shift from the first and third person in, in, the, uh, in the more recent version of the story um, which is told predominantly in the, in the third person um, there is this sense that we're seeing all of George's actions from above as the sky might see it I wonder if that shift in perspective is very significant as it seems to be to me There were lots of reasons why I went back to this story and and ended up rewriting it fairly fairly um, substantially. Um, I think when I was putting together the, this new collection of stories, I wanted to include this story. Um, it, you know, the new collection, the, the stories are all set in in the Fenlands and 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 are often about burial, either metaphorically or, or, or literally, or about digging or about the earth um, and the sky, and and this story seemed to set that up as a theme quite quite nicely, and and I was so I was very keen to include it, but every time I went back to it and read it, 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 it something felt wrong with it and, and there was something it felt like a story I'd written a long time ago and, I, and it, it just felt that it wouldn't fit into the new collection um, and I showed it to a few people to, to, to you know, see what they made of it and um, one, one friend of mine in particular very perceptively asked me what the woman in the story felt and thought and said and you know, she said you know in this story as you've written it originally the, the woman is a, is 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 a kind of silent character and and why is that and that, uh, that kind of took me aback quite a lot um and, and I guess I was curious I mean obviously in the original story it's it's written in the first person and it's written from the man's perspective but still you know she was right the, the woman the man's wife who he's supposedly in love with was a very kind of silent character and and so I kind of started from from there really kind of imagining reimagining the story from her point of view um and and imagining it yeah i guess as as a kind of act of revision and using the original text as a kind of source material um and making it more about the telling of the story and the kind of gaps in the story um and and seeing how it worked that way around it's really interesting that Joanna's perspective is the thing that shifts the action so much because in, in the early version of the story we're left at that cliffhanging moment when George tells her that he's run someone over and not done anything about it and that's how the story ends and of course you go away wondering what she's going to say next. In the new version of the story, in the more recent version of the story, for those who haven't read it, there is a a sense 
of shared complicity at least in some parts of the secret and that it's it does in fact sour what they have in some way at least I felt like it did and I wonder if I wonder if that approach to reassigning some of the burden to Jana got you thinking differently about firstly the story's initial um, heady premise of his um, careening into this new tenderness that he's found and whether or not it it, it made that relationship more adult or more um, complex in a way and did you find that that's I think I think one of the things I thought when, when I when I reread the original story and I was thinking about it from her point of view it just struck me as rather simplistic or rather kind of um I don't know maybe maybe more plot driven than than believable character driven to 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 have this idea of the big unknown secret that he'd kept to himself for twenty odd years um and that she didn't know anything about and she had no suspicion that anything was wrong it it just seemed it seemed a bit suspect and it seemed a bit kind of um grandiose really to have him kind of unveiling this 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 big important truth whereas actually you know the more I thought about it 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 seemed it seemed more true to have her knowing full well that something had happened and knowing full well that he had something to tell her and and, you know as in you know I think in life that you know the the women in, in my life know most things that I want to tell them before I get anywhere near telling them. You know, it just—I think it's a—it's a fairly universal truth, which maybe I didn't understand when I first wrote the story. Um, when I say women in my life, I'm talking about you know in different contexts. Not that I have a range <laughs> of women. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my mum or my sister or you know, a friend or, or my wife or my daughter. To be honest, you know, she's only six and she already kind of knows me better than than a lot of my male friends um yeah so it, it, i think that 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 was one of the big kind of changes in in terms of plot that that I kind of understood that that it would have been something that that they shared and that they were still not dealing with between them and still kind of it was it was something kind of unspoken between them but but that it what it couldn't be this this grand secret that he could suddenly unveil one day this this story is part of a collection that's coming out in February um, this isn't the kind of thing that happens to someone like you and as you say a large number of the stories take place in the Fens and in Lincolnshire and um, I thought it was particularly interesting if we focus on this story again that the role the sky plays and that particular fascination that it has um, with uh, the, the particular fascination that the sky um, holds for anyone who lives there um, the way that it has such a profound influence on the landscape because the landscape is so flat seeming generally and I wondered um, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the way that that, um, that element that 
the unceasingly uh, the unceasingly flat landscape um, combined with I think it's described at one point as the gift of the sky um, has on their relationship and the way that it it seems to see into every aspect of their relationship and in the first part it's a witness to in the first story sorry it's a witness to the original accident and death but in the second version of the story I started to think of it more as a an all-seeing eye that's that's roving around the whole relationship and and it's not so much about one isolated event and there are these very interesting passages where um words are arranged on a page almost like striations of cloud um and crossings out um and I think that that seemed to me um a very a sky-like patterning of words and I wonder how that came about well I guess the um I mean the arrangement of word of word the words on the page um on on every other page the the, the, you know, the words are kind of arranged as a kind of journal or as a kind of poem in in progress um and the idea with that is is that those are her writings her kind of journals of of, of poems that she's she's working on um and so the words are kind of scattered across the page and there are um strike throughs and larger and smaller pieces of text um and that text is all taken from the original version of the story so it's kind of it's almost as if I'm giving her the ability to rewrite that that version of the story um but in terms of the sky I think I think the first time I wrote the story I was just very conscious of of how much a part of the you know the phrase landscape in 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 the fens actually includes the sky you know and, and it's a skyscape as much as it's a it's a landscape and and there is something very peculiar about it it, it does something to your kind of perception of of space and and I think also of of time um you know you can see some weather that's happening elsewhere you can see it's raining 10 15 20 miles away and you can kind of judge whether the rain's coming your way or going another way and you can see you know the the, the sun might set way over at the horizon but it's still like where you are and it, it it's and and you can see things happening and 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 so you know you could there could be a somebody could drive drive into a into a man 10 miles away and, and and you might see it from 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 your window um and that sense of kind of exposure i think is really key to understanding the the lincolnshire fenland landscape and i guess more so in the original version of the story but still to some extent that sense of the sky kind of always watching kind of serves as a as a metaphor for something to do with God, you know, some kind of sense of being exposed to a to a, a watching presence, um, which I guess I don't know. I, I I I think in the in the original version of the story, I was kind of groping towards some kind of um, folk folk understanding of of um, 
the supernatural, I think. Mm. I want to talk more about Lincolnshire in a second, but I just want to return to something um, that you mentioned just a moment ago about Joanna's revisions of the early story and the literal way in which she's actually rewriting the story and this sense of wanting to include um, a female eye on the story or you know a feminine perspective on the story, her perspective. Um, I've associated for a long time um, um, with your work a sort of, I'd say, a, a sort of genderless perspective in the sense I don't, I don't think of your work as um, excessively masculine at all. You know, and I think that you often write wonderfully sympathetic women um, and realistic women. And in, certainly in the new collection, there's a whole host of stories that um, have extraordinarily um, conscious uh, women in them. And why is a story that was um, shortlisted for the BBC um, National Short Story Award um, is another story which I think has a very prescient and and real um, f female character in it and I wonder if when you were revising this when you were looking back on your early work um, do you do you think that there's a maleness there or do you do you, do you now do you aspire to being um, both sexes when you write I don't know I think it was really interesting when when my friend made this comment about the woman in the story being silent because I think as much as you try to kind of put to one side the, the, the comments that have been made in, in reviews and, and, and whatnot, um, when when you come to write, I think, you know, I have been told a number of times, oh, you know, it's, it's interesting that there's a, there's a lot of kind of women characters in your book or, or you, you, you write well from a woman's perspective, um, you know, people said that about the first book, particularly about if, if nobody speaks of remarkable things in which the the main narrator is a woman um, and so I I guess inevitably I'd kind of begun to take for granted the fact that, oh yeah I've, I've got that covered, you know I, I, I've got the women's perspective covered somehow um, you know, which consciously that's, that's absurd and, and you always have to kind of work harder at getting these things right but I guess subconsciously I, I, I had begun to think that and so for this friend of mine to, to, to go back to the to the very first thing I'd had published and said well hang on you know you've got this kind of voiceless silent woman in the, in the you know it really kind of it pulled me up short and it really kind of it was it was really refreshing and um and challenging and and maybe kind of revisit this story in particular um but at the same time, I think more recently I've been writing more men characters and and more becoming more interested in in maleness, I guess, or, or, or kind of men who are slightly screwing up at being men, you know, failing as 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 fathers or as partners or or just as men, full stop but are completely oblivious to the ways in which they're failing I think I mean, the last story in, in the in the collection is um, is all about all about that and I'm, I'm really interested in in how that works and how men kind of articulate or fail to articulate 
the ways in which they're they're failing and, and how they kind of deal that and deal with that and how they're aware of it. Um, so uh, yeah, I guess I'm still trying to inhabit both sides of the coin. Um, one of the other things that I found really interesting about this collection is that whilst um, there's a great intricacy and understanding of the areas that you're you're writing about, there are also these. I think quite playful stories in the collection that um, do have some fun with a kind of provincial setting in which there's one story that's a, um, an extended um, minutes from um, a, a sort of dystopian apocalyptic um, uh, village and, and the villagers have um, barricaded themselves in or they're planning to barricade themselves in and at once it's it's actually quite um, alarming to to um, go through this litany of all of the things that they're you know planning on uh, in order to prevent people from coming in and I wonder if um, I wonder if you're thinking about um, writing about these places changed in the course of writing the collection and whether or not you um, think that there is a, a certain type of isolation that you see intensifying to lead to those kinds of stories um, the, the way that a village can be a very insular place and um, I wonder if you um, saw those as, as parodic or comic stories as, as I read them in part um, I guess yeah I mean comic in in the kind of in the voice in which they're told more than in the kind of the premise of the of the story itself um and comic with a kind of slightly kind of sinister edge i think i think a lot of the stories some of the stories i i was trying to pull off this trick where there are two kind of parallel understandings of the story and 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 one of those understandings is actually incredibly kind of apocalyptic and dark and kind of sinister and and the other understanding is it's almost as if here's a situation that looks as if it's apocalyptic but it's obviously not and therefore it's funny and mm. and I guess that's a particular kind of humour and it, I, I find that funny but um <laughs> But I was trying to hold those two things in in in, in tension, where, whereby, you know, it's almost certainly not apocalyptic, but you're never quite sure, and 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 actually you're out here in Lincolnshire and you haven't seen anyone for the last hour, and and maybe it is the end of the world, you know, that that kind of that kind of tension, um, and there and there is a thread running through the running through all the stories um, in the book, which is something to do with climate change and, and you know kind of the fear of actual kind of disastrous um, yeah climate change um, and, and Lincolnshire being a very vulnerable place mm. to that um, you know in terms of sea level change and, and floods and all the rest of it which is where the, the that story that you mentioned comes in you know with the, the kind of the community of people who are preparing for, for you know what they see as the kind of coming crisis um, but yeah I, I, I guess yeah it's kind of playful and and sinister at the same time 
you mentioned the last story in the collection, and that's another story with a, a sort of semi-apocalyptic landscape, even though it's it's largely real, and the, the tornadoes dropping bombs on the sandbanks every that punctuate the story, and there is this duality between an incredibly um, unchanging, um, uh, as you say, if you note if someone was doing something off in the landscape, you could probably see it. And at the same time, these these strange aberrations that just happen. And um, I wonder. It, and you mentioned the, the the failing males in this story, and I think that seemed a particularly significant one to me in the way that it, it encapsulates a lot of what the collection is 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 meditating on, and that um, the way that that smallness of place um, can it can be right that the Lincolnshire isn't a place that we often associate with being at the centre of things but actually I think this collection suggesting that that it's it's at the mercy of these quite um, modern forces that we all we're all facing would you say yeah it's um, th- that story in particular I I was very um, I was trying to do that, that that thing that I was just talking about where you hold this kind of two Understandings of, of, of the story and balance, um, because you know I, I've been out out in kind of northeast Lincolnshire where there's a couple of large RAF bases and, and there's a there's a bombing range on the on the beach and um, you know and 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 at certain times of the year they do quite regularly fly over very low and and, and drop bombs on on the beach and. And also, when I was growing up in in, in Thetford in South Norfolk, there were a lot of air bases around there, and and I guess in the late eighties, early nineties, there was, you know, there were constantly jet fighters going overhead, you know, going very low and kind of breaking the sound barrier, and and you know, the, the big kind of sonic boom, and you kind of get used to it, but at the same time, it is quite sinister and quite unsettling, and um, and so in this story. You know, it's never commented on. They they just the planes come over and they drop bombs, um, and then it, it, it kind of the frequency of it picks up and picks up until you know somebody suggests that oh there probably is going to be another war now, and it's that kind of the casualness of it um, is trying to kind of link this Lincolnshire, you know, this sense of being kind of out of time and out of place, linking it with. You know the, the kind of global context and, and the kind of the the news context. You know the, the Iraq War and all the other wars that have been going on, um, and yet set against that, there's these two guys trying to get by, trying to fix up this fishing pond and not really getting anywhere, and, and just kind of feeling very sorry for themselves. Before we close, I just want to ask you, this story um, that you've revised um, first appeared in issue 78 of the magazine, um, Bad Company, and I just wanted to ask you what particular associations you hold with Granter or with that issue, and obviously that was the first story that you ever published, and I wonder um, whether or not there's a particular resonance or memory that comes back when, when you recall it. Well, yeah, very much so. I mean, it was... As you say, it was the first piece of work that I'd had published, um, and I think, kind of looking back, 
when I first started reading seriously and, and kind of thinking about literature seriously, Granter was always there as this kind of, you know, this kind of shining beacon, you know, this kind of thing to aim for um, someday. So for that to end up being the kind of the first publication was, was you know, it was really exciting. Um, and and so I, I kind of had mixed feelings in a way about revising the story so substantially it felt I don't know kind of disrespectful almost or, or yeah. and also the, the, there's a there's a sense in which you know revising a piece of work once it's been published is not really the done thing you know it, it, you, you wouldn't think twice if somebody did it uh, with a song or a piece of music you know there are lots of different versions and that's that's fine um but it's really quite unusual for a writer to, to do it with a, a, a John McGahan did it with a couple of his short stories and I, I think people sometimes do it when you know when they eventually get around to doing a, a collected stories they, they, you know, it seems like that's the point at which you're allowed to to revise um but generally it's 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 kind of not done um and so I felt yeah it felt like a an awkward thing to be doing but at the, at the same time I you know I really wanted to use the story in the new collection and I really felt that it needed to be a new story to 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 work in the collection um but it's you know it's really exciting that that it's going to be back in in uh, up on the granted website you know alongside the the original version fantastic and if I could just ask you to finish by reading the the opening pages of in winter the sky and just to say thank you so much for joining me today and for talking to me about the collection. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. In Winter the Sky He had something to tell her. He announced this the next day, after the fog had cleared, while the flood still lay over the fields. It looked like a difficult thing for him to say. His hands were shaking. She asked him if it couldn't wait until after she'd done some work, and he said that there was always something else to do, some other reason to wait and to not talk. All right, she said. Fine. Bring the dogs. They gave his father some lunch, and they walked out together along the path beside the drainage canal. She knew what he wanted to tell her, but she didn't know what he would say. What she knew about him when she was seventeen. He lived at the very end of the school bus route, he was planning to go to agricultural college when he finished his A-levels. He didn't talk much. He had nice hair. He didn't have a girlfriend. What she knew about him now? He didn't talk much. He had a bald patch which burnt in the sun when he refused to wear a hat. He didn't read. He was a careful driver. He trimmed his toenails by hand in bed. He often forgot to remove his boots when coming into the house. He still loved her. He was seventeen the first time he kissed a girl. The girl had long dark hair and brown eyes and chapped lips. They sank low in their seats on the school bus, leaning together, and she took his face in her hands and pushed her mouth onto his. She seemed to know what, he, what she was doing, he said later. He was wrong. She drew away just as he was beginning to get a sense of what he'd been missing and said that she'd like to see him again that same evening, if he wasn't busy. They should go somewhere, she said do something. He didn't ask where or what. She got off the bus without saying anything else and went into her house without looking back. She ran upstairs to her bedroom 
and watched the bus move slowly towards the horizon and wrote about the boy in her notebook. Leaving March, where she lived then, the school bus passed through Wimblington before swinging round to follow the B1098 parallel to 16-foot drain until it stopped near Upwell. It was a journey he made every day, from the school where he was studying for his A-levels to his father's house where he helped on the farm in the evenings, where the two of them run the farm together now. The road beside the 16-foot is perfectly straight, lifted above the level of the fields, and looking out of the window that afternoon felt, he said later, in a phrase she noted down, like he was passing through the sky. The girl's name was Joanna. The boy's name was George. He came back for her the same night. Thank you for listening, and do join us next time for more from the Granter Podcast.